0: First of all, you have to understand I tell him not to do it I tell him why not to do it My little brother is hard-headed Nine years old, gets in his little head He's gonna take his little money From cutting people's lawns From weeding Miss Chalmers' garden He's gonna not get the candy Not get comic books He's gonna be a good little saver Instead, he's going to buy an aquarium. Now, I'm 13 years old, so I see the future writ large, clear as day. Don't do it. He does it. Purchases this huge aquarium with lights, filters, plants, rocks, all the fixings. And every couple of weeks, we can convince my parents to take him to the aquarium supply store. He buys fish for his brand new tank. First, the zebra dianos, the then the betas, the mollies, the damselfish, tetris, angelfish, firemouths, and before you know it, the tank is beautiful. This menagerie of multicolored darts flitting in and out between the greenery and the shelters he's carefully placed. My brother never takes care of anything. He takes care of this and he's a natural it sounds crazy but each individual fish has their own personality one of the betas Sanford will even let him gently stroke their underbelly like he's petting a dog it's cool then the entirely predictable thing happens Pops tells us we're moving this week to a new house a new school on the other side of the state of course we are we move every single year. Different reasons, like rent, cantankerous neighbors, somebody talking about pressing charges. Whatever. He says to pack up all your stuff. Not gonna be a lot of room in the U-Haul. Most things gotta get left behind. Like I said, I'm 13 years old. I've seen too much. I've been too many places. I've learned too many hard lessons. So I don't tell my little brother that most things means his fish. Only after my father tells him to flush him down the toilet, he comes to me panicked. I told you not to get those fish. You gotta help me! Didn't I tell you? gotta help me. Please help me, help me, help me, help me. I'm not gonna lie. I didn't like fish. But now, I kinda like fish. I right, knucklehead. So we prepare. We practice. We get everything ready. Then we wait wait until the very last minute, the very last moment. Because we know when you put the fish in the plastic bags, the race is on. Every second counts. If we don't get them back in the aquarium soon, they die. If it's too hot, too cold in between our legs and the back of the station wagon, they die. If the water leaks, they die. And I'll never forget that look on my little brother's face as he checks and rechecks the seals on the plastic bags as we ride down I-96 toward Grand Rapids. And today, we're going on a different type of journey with an entirely different sort of animal. Snap proudly presents Love Cats. Love Cats. 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 My name is Kim Washington, and believe me, sometimes we don't know how we're doing until we know how they're doing. When you're listening to Snap Judgment. Now, Russia, Alas, she knows the road. She grew up in multiple countries spent her 20s and 30s reporting on events around the world. And this piece contains some graphic imagery and description of wartime violence because by 2010, Rasha was covering religious affairs in the Middle East. But she began looking for something deeper than a story. So she left her full-time job to freelance in Damascus, Syria, where she was born. Snap Judgment.
1: The reason I wanted to go back to Syria so badly was because for a long time, I did feel nostalgic for something that never was there, like as if it were just a mirage. And I thought, I have to go to Syria. This was the country that for my entire life, I felt I needed to connect with, to understand I had always felt some sense of belonging, but I wanted to cement that belonging, even if it was an illusion. I mean, maybe all our sense of belonging is an illusion.
2: Rasha booked a flight on Middle East Airlines and boarded with everything important to her.
1: When we boarded the flight, Gremlin kept pushing with her head, the zipper popped, and she climbed onto my stomach and just stayed there. And I could feel her belly against mine, like completely frozen, her paws hugging me and her her nails going through my sweater. And then suddenly the one flight attendant just stopped in her tracks and was like, is that a cat? And I'm like, yeah, sorry, she's scared.
2: Rasha's travel companions were two kittens. She had adopted them a few months earlier.
1: When I first saw them, I thought they were hilariously cute, just so adorable. But I did not want to take on any responsibility. I didn't want any pets. A friend of mine said, it's okay, just bring them in just to foster them. And then that same day, they spent the night at my place. And by the morning, I'm like, yeah, they're not going anywhere. I'm not giving them up. And this one is Pumpkin, and that one is Gremlin. Gremlin resembled the gremlins that I recall from the movie Gremlins before they hatch into monsters. Fuzzy and gray with huge blue eyes and just funny looking. Pumpkin is orange, and he really did look like a pumpkin, you know, on Halloween. Just his head hanging low and looking kind of sad. I think I relate a little bit to both. I definitely relate to Pumpkin's restlessness and pushing boundaries and getting into trouble here and there. And I definitely relate to Gremlin's interest in just (laughs) lounging by the fireplace and eating delicious fatty food and just hanging out in the sunshine.
2: Rasha landed in Damascus with her two cats and a few suitcases.
1: So I arrived at the family home, knocked on the door, and I heard, like, my mom's footsteps walk toward the door. She was expecting me, of course. I walked in, I immediately opened the cat's carriers, and they came out of their carriers and... It was nice to see that the the cats, um, they weren't scared. They immediately, they started investigating the house, smelling, sniffing, and all that stuff, and settled in pretty quickly, actually. It felt like they were always there. You know, it was just very natural to have them there. When I returned to Syria, it was very pleasant. It's a nocturnal culture, so before 3, 4 a.m., Restaurants would be just like a beehive. Coffee and more tea and more food and the sour and salty aromas. It was very safe. Sometimes, you know, I would return home by myself at 3 a.m. It was very nice.
2: On the surface, Damascus was treating Rasha well. The parties were lively. Her friends and family were close. But there was a feeling she couldn't quite shake.
1: I felt like that would manifest itself in very simple ways, like in the small talk that people do that I never quite pinned down, even like buying a cup of coffee from the coffee shop and the barista would be like, oh, uh, you have a slight heaviness to the tongue, you know, as in, as in you have like a slight accent, even though I'm fluent in the language and I grew up with the same food and all that stuff. I was still an outsider, you know, the, the one that left and, and comes back sometimes.
2: Even though she lived there with her cats and spoke fluent Arabic, Rasha struggled to call Syria home. As a journalist, it seemed like no one cared about stories from Syria, a closed-off country where nothing new seemed to happen. But then she started to notice something.
1: If you listened hard enough, or you looked hard enough, you could see something seething beneath the surface. I mean, there were a lot of problems. Everything seemed to be unsustainable. Starting with the corruption, for example, Uh, simple things like the cop might pull you over for running a red light, but immediately you just tip him and he'd let you go. You know, the authorities coming in and demanding bribes in return for not evicting you. You know, and the same like with education, all my cousins, you know, they had to bribe college professors, pay them extra so that they would help them pass the exams. So these things were just everywhere. And and they were very frustrating because you could see where disaster could potentially explode. Sometime in December 2010, the protests and the uprising, that's when it began. First, there were peaceful protests, and then they were met by live bullets from the regime. My family was also like, oh, no, you know, it'll stop. It's just going to resolve itself in a few days, you'll see. That's what everybody kept saying, but it kept getting worse. It's an uprising-turned-civil war-turned-regional war. And I was like under no condition am I going to leave now Because international media had very limited access inside Syria And so the reports would come out like 300 people were slaughtered overnight in a village But we could not independently verify it This disclaimer to me was so upsetting And actually many times it was the reason I risked my own life just so I could say in my report that this is verified, that this is indeed what happened.
2: Rasha committed to staying in Syria and witnessing what was about to happen. And she had a plan. First, she got her family out.
1: Frankly, I mean, I kept pushing my mom to leave. I'm like, just go, just go to the US, just stay there for a while. So yeah, she left.
2: Next, she set up base in a third-floor apartment in Damascus with her cats.
1: I did have emergency protocols. Here's my passport, my extra water, my extra battery. And then on good days, I would practice with the cats. I would just, like, scoop them up, put them in their carrier, and see how long that took.
2: Finally, in order to work as a journalist, she had to get a permit from the Ministry of Information. But it was rare that they ever handed those out.
1: And even if they did, they would seriously hinder the ability for anyone to report. Because if you go around, you know, as, as quote unquote, licensed journalists, the people you interview realize that this person is working with the blessings of the information ministry and they censored themselves. So I decided, OK, I'm not going to go apply for a permit.
2: Rasha was feeling isolated before the war. But now, as a journalist working under the regime's nose,
1: I couldn't trust anybody, and frankly, nobody trusted me. There were so many aspects to worry about, being followed, personal safety and security, someone being spooked by my asking too many questions and reporting me. There's really no such thing as undercover reporter because, you know, that's just being a spy. So it was just me and the two cats. So I would wake up in the morning, leave the apartment, and I would see a new death notice. You would see the death notices announced on flyers, plastered on walls in the neighborhood where the dead people used to live um, or where they might have relatives. Every day was a reminder to me of grief that, parents and children were going through all around me and I would just come home and um, see pumpkin and gremlin and just to relax I would take one of the cats and uh, on the balcony and and start like combing uh, their fur over and over and over again and the cat would just you know be purring and and relaxing and I would be just sort of in a hypnotic state, just kind of brushing and brushing.
2: Rasha snuck in and out of regime and rebel-controlled areas, watching the clothing she wore and who she talked to. At home, the phone barely rang anymore. And when the power was cut, she and the cats were left alone in the dark with the sounds of war.
1: We heard a whistle. The cats, they seemed to hear the whistle before I heard it, and they looked in the same direction and ran off to hide someplace. My brain actually processed the reaction of the cat before processing what the sound was about. The whistle is like building. It came from one side, went over the building, and then a blast on the other side of the building where my living room overlooked. The whole apartment, shook and then all all i could think was basically seek lower ground or risk death no time to look for the cats i mean it was instinct you know the cat's instinct was was to just scramble and hide and my instinct was to seek lower ground because i felt so vulnerable and exposed on the third floor So I'm going down the stairs, and there's another missile coming, you know, another whistle, another blast. And I remember skipping over um, steps as I was, you know, running down the stairs. And again, my brain is like, lower ground or risk death. Lower ground or risk death. That's all that was going through my brain. At the ground level, the street level, I saw one of my neighbors, and she was just sort of hypnotized, standing by the lobby door. She's like, my kids, my kids, they, they should be on their way home from school. My kids, my kids. And I'm like, they're fine. I'm sure school is in lockdown. Of course, I didn't know that. It didn't matter. I just, all, all I knew was she had to come down to the basement with me. I grabbed her hand and then another blast, and then she pulled away, and she's like, no, my kids, my kids, and then I pull her back. And finally, we're both in basement level. Most apartment buildings in Damascus, they don't have bunkers or anything like that. And the basement floor is usually someone's home. And this was someone's home, and there were a few other neighbors there already. And um, that's where we stayed, waiting out the attack to end. I remember just being quiet and hearing the people around me breathing and listening really, really intently. Is there another whistle? Is there another projectile flying toward us? I started thinking about the cats in the midst of, of fire and, and the high heat. And of course, I was feeling tormented. Slowly, we ventured up from the basement. Um, we saw some government guards on the street level, and they were outside, so that was kind of a visual cue that the attack was over. So I went upstairs, and I opened the door. Immediate, like, visual scan. Everything is in its rightful place. Okay, thank God, thank God. And then, pumpkin, gremlin! Where are they? Where are they? Pumpkin, gremlin! The minute I saw them, it was just relief. And it was like, ah, I knew it. I knew it. I had convinced myself that they would sort of know where to hide and survive a mortar attack. That's what kept me calm.
0: rasha find that connection she's been looking for or will the mirage of her home country finally disappear into the fog of war stay tuned support for Snap judgment comes from odoo what is odoo To learn more, visit odoo.com snap. That's O-D-O-O dot com snap. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the Love Cats episode. When last we left, Rasha and her two cats, they just survived a mortar attack. And as such, this story does contain graphic imagery and descriptions of wartime violence Because there's more danger awaiting in Damascus.
2: Over the next weeks, another mortar attack struck near the apartment. And then another. The cats always sprinting for cover.
1: There was one time when I kept a litter box on the balcony in a a protected area. And one time, Gremlin was using the litter box. And then, boom, there was a blast while she was doing her business. And poor thing, she jumped high in the air and scrambled and then she stopped using that litter box they just have such strong instinct they reacted differently to a mortar shell than to a, a car bomb for example before i heard anything i would notice both of them would crouch low and then like start moving kind of slowly but quickly with their tail being really heavy, dragging behind them on the floor. And like as my brain is processing that visual, that's when I would usually hear the boom of a car bomb. And I got to a point where I learned to watch their reaction to help me ascertain whether the blast we had just heard was more likely a car bomb or a mortar shell that that exploded. What always stood out to me was how the cats could never lie. You know, as a journalist, you're, you're working with words, you're working with narrative and stories, and you're sifting through the propaganda and the human biases, and you're sifting through your own bias. And none of that is relevant when it comes to animals, animals.
2: The cat's raw honesty was a reminder that being in a war zone would affect Russia, even if she didn't realize it.
1: I do remember one time a rebel held town agreed to put down their weapons and surrender themselves to the Syrian authorities. And their sick and injured would be transported out. So I went there, you know, and we were waiting for them to come out and then finally. UN vans and buses started like bringing them out, and they all were quiet, and they looked gaunt, and like even little babies that were being held by their moms were not crying; they were silent. And I remember this one man was transferred out on a in a medical van, and then he was unloaded from the van uh, on a gurney, and and his leg was straight up in the air, like it was stuck in that position. And I I looked and I just felt hot tears on my face before I realized I was crying.
2: Rasha covered the war for three straight years and she started taking routine trips out of Damascus to Beirut.
1: During wartime in Syria, I would say I was actually in control. And the minute I went to Beirut just to relax. That's when I would come undone.
2: Rasha usually left the cats in Damascus, but one day while packing for her usual trip to Beirut, she decided to do something different.
1: So I didn't pack everything, but I did bring the cats. For some reason, I just had this hunch I wanted to bring them with me. Usually they like to um, sit in the passenger seat So at every checkpoint, you go through the same um, routine, ID check, car check, car search. They bang on your trunk to open the trunk for searching. They just open the doors of your car and, you know, like shove themselves in the car to, you know, look under the seat and whatnot. You know, and then like someone would do that and he'd just be startled at the cats. You know, they'd be sitting there um, and I'd be looking at him, and he'd be looking at them. And I remember one young conscript, and he's like, what are those? And I'm like, they're cats. And, and he's like, not like the cats in my village. They kind of would soften all this edginess at the checkpoints on the way to the border. So a couple of days after we arrived safely in Beirut, As I was sort of starting to recalibrate and plan my return and plan more stories to cover back in Syria, I received a phone call uh, from a friend in Damascus advising me not to return. Don't come back. There are people asking after you. Had I been, quote unquote, caught doing, you know, reporting without a license, that's reason to detain, arrest, torture, disappear, someone for sure. I accepted it was time to stop reporting on war. I did not want to take the risk that my mom would endure getting that call. The call in the middle of the night or a knock on the door during dinner, that's just not fair to her. I was telling loved ones back in Syria, that I was not returning to Damascus, then they would be like, please pack me into a suitcase and take me with you. (laughs) I wish I were your cat. They wrap it in humor, but it's heart-wrenching. I mean, these are relatives, you know, uncles and aunts and, and cousins and, I mean, they envy the cat and the cat is in a very enviable position.
2: Rasha told Pumpkin and Gremlin that they weren't going back to the war or the family home or the homeland she had tried so hard to connect with. They were flying to the United States.
1: I, I was no longer nostalgic. Just if you think of a photograph of a house or something and it's burning slowly, the image of the house is disappearing into the flame. And that, I think, captures this image of something that I had always sort of held as home, and it turned into ash, literally. That's it, I was done. That flight, I put the cats next to me on the empty seat, you know, and they were fine, they would fallen asleep. It meant so much because not only were they a constant in my life when nothing else has been constant, they also resembled innocence The innocence we want to protect in the middle of cruelty. And they survived the war with their innocence intact. I mean, who else can say that? No one. No one else can say that.
0: Now, that's the end, right? Rasha gets to the United States, all's well that ends well. Pumpkin and Gremlin curl up while she types away at a keyboard in Washington, D.C. and continues to cover stories in the Middle East this very day. But then came the pandemic, and with it, the ultimate distraction, Zoom.
1: Uh, That morning, I also happened to be on a meeting for work on Zoom, and I got distracted, and then... You know, I checked where Pumpkin was, and I couldn't find him. I couldn't find him anywhere in the house, and I couldn't find him in the yard. So when I realized that Pumpkin was missing, my mind was frantic, and I started imagining him being run over by a car or being stolen, you know, because, I mean, people steal good-looking pets all the time.
0: Let's just stop right there and hear that again.
1: People steal good-looking pets all the time.
0: And Pumpkin is all kinds of handsome.
1: So I started looking for him. I, well, I went out, you know, I was disheveled and shoes on backwards or something and just kind of very frantic. Excuse me, excuse me, have you seen a orange fluffy cat? Like, no, sorry. Good luck. We'll keep an eye. And I went into the back alley behind my house and I had one of his like uh, food cans and just tapping on a can and I would sort of call his name Pumpkin Kino. I was so engrossed in my own frantic search for Pumpkin and all the thoughts and emotions that were involved in that search. It wasn't just that the cat went missing, oh no, it was more like after all that, after all that we've been through, surviving everything, this is it? this would be the end, just like that. And then finally I looked and and there's a neighbor of mine and he's like, excuse me, are you looking for a cat? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, there's a cat next, here in the yard next to ours. Well, is 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 he orange, is he fluffy? Yeah, he's orange and fluffy, he's complaining. And um, indeed, Pumpkin was right there in the yard next to theirs. And then I, like, coached him, like, yeah, jump here, jump here, jump here. And then I grabbed him from on top of the fence and literally, like, took him home. <laughs> it was such a relief. It, it just felt like being whole again, like everything is fine again. You know, anywhere, anywhere I found myself in my life, it was very much a temporary place. That was my normal, was everything is temporary. After the move, I wanted something constant, something familiar. And um, pumpkin and gremlin were this constant.
0: And there is something beautiful and constant about having your animals nearby. But please, understand, please, if there's one thing you can take away from this.
1: People steal good-looking pets all the time.
0: Do not leave your furry friends unattended. Thanks to Rasha again for sharing this story. And a reminder, of course, that dogs are better than cats. Rasha's career as a journalist is still going strong. She's an editorial director at New Lines Magazine, where she first shared this story. And she's working on a memoir about her childhood and reporting days in Syria. Follow what she's working on next at rashaelaz.com or snapjudgment.org the Original score for that story is by Renzo Gorio is produced by David XMA. See? See? Snap time flies by If you want your time to fly by doing chores, long drives carpool with that Tom from down the street stupid Tom I've got the solution at hand Follow Snap Judgment on any podcast platform to hear more incredible stories. Download the journey. If you're looking to meet the best people, just look around for who's wearing a Snap Judgment t shirt. Guaranteed, that person will be awesome. If you want to be awesome too, yours is available right now at snapjudgment.org. Snap is brought to you by the team that would never tell the cat to go sleep outside so the dog could have the entire couch all to himself because he's such a good boy. No one would do that except for the user, Mr. Mark Ristich, Nancy Lopez, Pat Mercedes-Miller, Regina Beriaco, David XMA, Renzo Gorio, Sheena Shealy, Teo Ducat, Vern Wiley, John Facile, Marissa Dodge, Davy Kim, Bo Walsh, and Annie Nguyen. Wow. Well, this is not the news. No way is the news. In fact, while you're juggling bags of your brother's aquarium creatures between your legs and the back of the station wagon, your dad could ask if you want to pull over for a filet of fish sandwich. Very funny, Pops! And you would still, still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is PRX.